Dear Asian Americans, let's celebrate, support, and inspire. Welcome to Dear Asian Americans. I am your host, Jerry Wan. And on this episode six, I share my conversation with author Helena Kuri. She's the author of two children's books. The first one is called The Turtle Ship, and the most recent one that just came out in February of 2020 is called The Paper Kingdom. Through my conversation, I ask her her inspiration point for writing the second book, which is based on her own life story of growing up the children of Korean immigrants who did what they had to do to provide a better life for her. And it's a very special one because, as you'll hear in the interview, it resonated in a way that I didn't know that it would. So it's an amazing story. I'm grateful to have met her, a big fan of her work, and she really demonstrates that you can go down a traditional path of academia and traditional success and still have an opportunity later in life to share the stories that help shape our experiences and our perspectives so much. So without further ado, here's my conversation with Helena. Helena, thank you for joining us on the show today. My pleasure. Thanks for inviting me. It's really great to have you for, for obviously representation reasons of having a Korean American author on the show. I have a very personal reason of why I wanted to have you on the show, and it, it means a lot to me. Helena, introduce yourself to us. Sure. My name is Helena Kuri, and I am a writer based in Los Angeles. But in addition to writing, I actually work full-time at Sony Pictures. I'm a VP there, so I have a very, very busy schedule, as you can imagine. But my passion is writing. And so my, um, I, I write not only for kids, I write uh, children's books, but I also write articles for various um, news outlets, such as the LA Times. My most recent children's book is entitled The Paper Kingdom, and it was released this past February. It's been a wild ride. It, Penguin Random House released the book, and uh, it sold out on Amazon in less than a week, which was great. And I've just been busy doing marketing and promotion activities related to the book. I think it's really awesome to see somebody who is established as you are in your main corporate life or your main professional life also have a side hustle that isn't just to make money, but it is so important um, in, in capturing your own life experience. And, and so let's start sort of your inspiration for the book. Um, share with us, how did the... How did your family move to America, become Korean American? Um, where did you guys move to? And how did that play a role into how your identity was shaped early on in your life? Sure. So my parents and I immigrated to the U.S. when I was almost two years old. So I was you know, pretty much a baby. And uh, we came to Los Angeles. It's funny because my dad was uh, trying to figure out whether we should immigrate to Queens, New York, Flushing, more specifically, or to Los Angeles, two uh, huge Korean communities in both areas. So he chose LA, and I I still thank him for that because the weather is awesome, obviously. And um, we settled in Koreatown at first, and um, my parents obviously had very little funds and could speak pretty much no English, and so they had a really hard time finding a job at that time. And so my dad had a full-time job making metal parts for various objects during the day. And then at night, my parents worked as night janitors together and they couldn't afford childcare. So they often had to take me to work with them. And I was about 
three years old at the time, three, four years old. And the amazing thing was you would think that this was a very dreary, unpleasant situation. And it probably was for them. But I also remember having so much fun because my parents made that experience as entertaining as possible for me because they didn't want a cranky kid on their hands. They wanted a a kid who was happy to be with them. So they would tell funny stories. They would um, they would make an imaginary place of the office building. And so the Paper Kingdom is actually based on that experience. It's about a small boy named Daniel who has to go to work with his parents as night janitors in an empty office building where they turn drudgery into magic. That is amazing. Um, so uh, the day the book came out, I went to go buy it for my kids. And, uh, you know, at that night I shared with my wife, hey, I got this book. My friend wrote it um, and I gave her the basic premise of the book. Mm-hmm. And I didn't know this, but she turns to me and she goes, you know, my parents did that too. Really? And, you know, it's just, it's, it was crazy. Um, you know, partially because here's a woman that I've been married to for the past five years. And mm-hmm. I, I didn't ask the right questions to get the whole story. Mm-hmm. And, and so, yeah, it was just a very emotional sort of moment in knowing that my father-in-law, my mother-in-law mm-hmm. made similar sacrifices. And, you know, I, I think Kyung was a little bit older in her life when they did it. So, you know, she was active an active participant mm-hmm. in, in, the, uh, in, in the job and helping her mm. parents obviously get through it. But, oh, wow. um, I mean, just there's such an amazing love and, and sacrifice that I think that I don't think we can sometimes even verbally or physically exemplify today because yeah. our upbringing was so different than how we define um, opportunity and, and what our threshold of pain and sacrifice is, is, is so different. Um, yeah. But, you know, I, I wanted to share that with you because this book, um, it's helped me in my relationship with my wife and helping a better understanding of, you know, her parents' sacrifice and her life story of, of how she made her decisions to get to uh, where she is now. So, from me on a, on a very personal note, thank you so much for doing this. Oh, wow. That's that's a great story. And um, what's interesting is I've had a lot of people reach out to me and say, my parents did something similar too, or my parents also had to take me to work too, you know, that sort of thing. And it's really surprising because I know that my experience is not unique. And, you know, your your wife's testimony is it points to the fact that it's it's actually a common experience, especially among immigrants. I mean, this isn't necessarily just an immigrant story, but I find that it's it's a very um, common theme among immigrants where you have these super hardworking parents, and often the children either have to help out in that or they they're taken along because you know lack of childcare, lack of social services. What I what I wanted to say to that is for for a lot of our generation and our parents' generation, that's kind of the way life was. And so, you know, people ask me, how come this wasn't your first picture book? How come you didn't tell this story years and years ago? And that's partially because, and I'm sure it's like this for your wife, where it was kind of just normal life for us. I didn't think it was all that unusual. Uh, Yes, my parents worked hard and yes, they had to take me to work, but I knew of a lot of other kids who were in similar situations. So I never really thought it was all that special until one night 
I was driving on Wilshire Boulevard and these memories just started triggering for some reason of that time period. And I thought, you know what, let me try writing a children's book about this. And I did. And the reaction from the publishing industry, I was amazed. I mean, there, I, I, the first offer came in from Penguin Random House within a day and I couldn't believe it because normally as a writer trying to get a book traditionally published from the American publishing industry, you wait around, you get rejected, you wait around some more, you get rejected some more, you know, that's the common story. And so for the first offer to come in 24 hours later, um, it was, it was incredible. So I thought, oh my goodness, maybe this story is actually special. I, th I thought it was just a common thing among, among especially immigrants, but maybe, maybe there's something special to it. Just like your wife's story, the fact that she had to help her parents work. I mean, that's amazing. I think it's, you, you bring up an interesting or, or just a, a fact of reality for many immigrant kids, which in our parents' lives and their decision was driven not by, you know, the chase for enlightenment or changing the world. It was to mm -hmm. survive. Exactly. And particularly in the, you know, Korean East Asian mindset or a lot of cultures really of we-ness, right? Mm -hmm. Like we are in this thing together. So, you know, it's, it's amazing. I, I know of another amazing woman here in Koreatown, Toyon, who is making a movie called Liquor Store Dreams, mm. which is about children of liquor store owners. And that life is really about just, you know, having to watch the counter. I mean, there's oh, yeah. you know, an amazing show that, you know, Kim's Convenience, it's about yeah, that story. And, and exactly. I think these stories resonate because while it took us such a long time as a community to internalize it first, mm -hmm. accept that it was okay, and then get to this point of, yeah, I'm going to scream it from the mountaintops because one, it, it's obviously an homage and a thank you to our parents. You know, it, it's to me, it's trifle, right? Like it's, it's thanking our parents for all the sacrifices that they made. Mm -hmm. And then two, you know, sharing with our peers, like, Hey, we're all in this together. You know, just because you went to XYZ school, then you do ABC job, like this doesn't go away. Um, right. And then three sort of for your kids, my kids and the next generation, like, dude, we lived through this. Mm -hmm. And just in the way that I think our parents sometimes, unfortunately, went out of their way to hide a lot of the challenges that they were going through because they didn't think we needed to know it. Mm -hmm. I think it's so important for us to share these stories now because there's no shame in any of it. It was just life and we yeah. needed to get through you know, those tough years to be where we are now. Exactly. How did that impact your career ambitions? Because yeah. for the first chapter of Helena's adulthood, academia leading into adulthood, you took a very traditional path. I did. I took an extremely traditional path, probably as traditional as you could get. I went to Yale for college, and then I went to law school at Berkeley. All this time, I was still writing because that was my true passion. But I knew, you know, having witnessed my parents work that hard, I knew that I had to get a good job so that I could help them. And writing, it's such a fickle persuasion. You don't know when the next paycheck is coming. I knew I couldn't be a full-time writer. That was just not part of the equation. I had to help my parents. So I went to law school, became a corporate attorney, still kept writing. And, um, you know, I'll be honest with you. It was really hard at times because as a corporate attorney in a law firm, sometimes you're working 12, 15 hours a day, 
including the weekends. And so I would have so little energy for writing. The last thing I want to do is sit at a computer and type. There were a few years there where I just didn't have the um, energy or the, the desire to sit there and write, but it still nagged at me. I still wanted to write. And so I went in-house. When you go in-house, typically the, the hours get better and typically the work-life balance gets better. And that was my situation. I went in-house at the movie studios and finally I was able to get my weekends back. Finally, I was able to get my evenings back and that freed up time to actually read and write and do the things that I truly wanted to do. But yes, you're absolutely right. I followed a traditional path because I had to. I, I couldn't just leave my parents to, um, I mean, they, they, they did much better in life um, as the years went by. They, they switched careers. They, my dad became a machinist making parts for airplanes and cars and that sort of thing. And my mom became a seamstress making clothes. So they made, they made more money later on in life. However, it was never the comfortable middle-class life that I had wanted for them. And so I knew that once I became an adult, I wanted to do things like um, send them on a yearly vacation somewhere fun. And I, I do that every year now. I send them on a yearly vacation somewhere in Europe or Asia or wherever they want to go. Um, maybe it's going to be Peru this year, but I give them that opportunity and I help them with their mortgage because that was always important to me growing up. I wanted to give back to them. That's beautiful. Um... <laughs> Thank you. As you were making your career choices, you know, through adolescence and high school and, and choosing to go to Yale and eventually to law school, how much of those desires or motivations were driven by your wanting to provide a better life for your parents versus really what you thought you wanted to do? Because what I hear from your answers is writing was always a passion that is a theme that is continued to weave through your entire life. Mm -hmm. Is there a choice that you had to make to put, you know, writing on pause? Mm-hmm. What, what did you study at Yale and was, was it a binary choice for you between law and writing to a degree? Mm-hmm. So at Yale, I majored in English. Makes sense, right? Because I've always wanted to be a writer and I wanted to surround myself with books. And I knew that even if I majored in English, um, I could either go into academia or go to law school or, you know, I, I knew that the combination of going to Yale and being an English major could possibly open some doors. So I, I worked hard at that. And um, I wasn't quite sure I wanted to go to law school after college. So I spent actually two years living abroad. I lived abroad in Korea on a Fulbright fellowship for a year. And then I lived abroad in Paris, just enjoying life in Paris. I, I remember my mom being so stressed out during that time because she thought, what is my daughter doing with her life? I thought, I was going to push her to go to law school, but she's living in Paris, just sitting at cafes. What is she doing? But I had the time of my life. Um, but I knew that I had to do something, quote unquote, responsible. So the next step was completely driven by that sense of responsibility. I went to law school. I did not enjoy it my first year. I actually thought about dropping out because I thought this just doesn't fit with my personality or my desires. It, it was just really rough for me because I, I tend to live my day-to-day -day in a world of imaginary and fictional characters because that's just the way my mind works as a writer. And the law is so based in fact and 
um, process and procedure. It was very dry for somebody like me who is very imaginative. And I think one of my greatest strengths is creativity. And so there was a kind of a clash and I, I went through a lot of soul searching and um, I talked to the dean. I said, I don't know if I belong here. I, I'm thinking about dropping out. And she said, just give it a year. And even though you don't decide to practice law after all this, having a legal degree will open doors for whatever you do. And um, it took me years to realize the truth in what she said, but it became true because I practiced law for a handful of years, went in-house as a lawyer for the studios, and now I don't practice law anymore. I'm on the business side. I'm in a department called business affairs where we negotiate deals and that sort of thing. But it's it's more in line with um, how I'm wired because I have I have to use more of my creative decision making skills. And um, it's it's been such a good change for me. And um, I, now I'm so glad that I stuck with it because I'll tell you those years when I was working at a law firm, I was thinking, what am I doing with my life? This working 12, 15 hours a day, just drafting contracts. It's just not how I envisioned my youth. But um, I eventually used the law degree to follow a path that is totally in line with the way I'm wired. During those years in big law, which, as you mentioned, and I think it's it's commonly known, it's a lot of long hours, not a lot of fulfilling work, yet you continue to write. What were you writing about at that time? I was working on a novel for the mainstream adult audience, so not children's books, but I was writing a novel, and I worked on one single novel for over a decade. And um, that novel got some attention from a few agents here and there, but eventually it didn't go anywhere. And I remember being so crushed by that. But the good news is that while I was writing this novel, I was also, you know, trying my hand at children's literature and doing this, that and the other. So I, um, yes, I was mainly focused on this one novel, but I had some other manuscripts that I'd been kind of um, tweaking on the side. And so when it came time for me to actually shift gears and focus on children's literature, it was great because I had material to work with already. So your first book wasn't necessarily about your your childhood or your personal experiences or your Korean American identity, I take it. Well, I mean, some of that, it, it, it doesn't really deal with my childhood. It does deal with like my Korean American identity as an adult because the, the main character is a Korean American. But um, it's such a far departure from my children's books. Um, I'm hoping to rework that book someday because I think there's something in there that resonates with people because even though um, I had approached agents back then and, and they didn't really want to take it on, I did get a couple of emails from the agent's assistant saying, I really enjoyed your book. I think that you can still work with it. And that still lingers with me. I'm thinking that maybe in the next year or two, maybe I'll turn to that novel and try to rework it. That's pretty cool. I, yeah. I, mean, I think that's really, I mean, the world that you work in now, which is big studio and big publishing houses, the decision-making process can seem very opaque at times where mm -hmm. it really stems on how that person is even feeling that day from just a pure emotional perspective. But to get that feedback from not the decision maker, but somebody who is definitely in your future audience, that's, that's yeah. really impactful. Yes, definitely. And um, 
you know, one of my professors, my writing professors, I told her about that whole experience. And she said, you know what, save that email, because someday that assistant may become a huge agent, you have no idea. So, so um, keep that in mind, you know, and also be nice to people as you're going up and be nice to people as you're going down. That's something I keep in mind, be nice to everybody, whether it's the assistant, the janitor, the, the head agent, you just never know. Right. I, I think you, you never know. I mean, one, it, one, one, it's the right thing to do. And exactly. And then two, even if you're a selfish, selfish, self-motivated person, uh-huh. there's, there's business reasons for you to be nice to people. So, <laughs> yeah, um, I mean, that's, that's absolutely true. I mean, kindness should be the way of the world, but apart from kindness, you know, you just never know who, who people, who your audience will be, who your supporters will be. So that's right. pretty cool. Yeah. Was there a particular moment that you decided that your first book was The Turtle Ship, which is, mm-hmm. you know, a version of a, a Korean history um, story right. that we all a lot of us are familiar with. And then this one is an extremely personal story about your life, but mm-hmm. dramatized through a you know Daniel. Was there a particular point in your life where you decided, at least for the first few books that you want to write, that you wanted to feature kids that look like you? Yeah, I mean, representation has always been at the forefront of my writing, for sure. But I also write books that have nothing to do with Asian America. And the interesting thing is, whenever I give my agent and then the publisher books that are, say, about a dog or about flowers or something random, not dealing with identity, they always seem to be more interested in my books about identity. So it's it's interesting because I think they see me as a quote unquote diverse own voices writer. They want to see that kind of output from me, not so much the books about dogs or flowers or that sort of thing. <laughs> so um yeah, I mean maybe it's the big push in the publishing industry to get more diverse stories. I'm not sure. But um I have a whole wide range of manuscripts and um it seems to be that they want the the market just wants the the stories about identity or Asian America from me. I am on both sides of that coin mm-hmm. all the time, right? Because yeah, we have the best ability because we lived it to tell yes. our own mm-hmm. stories. Yet, if the rest of the world mm-hmm. don't see us as anything but people who can tell Asian stories, then we'll never have the ability to just be an author, just be a producer, just be a movie maker, right? Yeah. Hollywood sort of is the biggest and the most visible things that we can learn from. But cool, you guys made Crazy Rich Asians, but that was an all Asian cast. Mm -hmm. And Parasite won, but that was a literal Korean movie. There was not a lot of American components to that. You know, do you see that in the publishing world too, to an extent? Abigail's recent book, Love Boat in Taipei, you know, New York Times bestseller mm-hmm. um, about her different Asian American experience. I love the fact that we're sharing our own stories because only we can. And, and for mm-hmm. so long, we didn't, um, we weren't allowed to, or we felt like we weren't allowed to share. You have an English degree from Yale and a law degree from Berkeley. You you can write better than anybody else in the world, right? So do, do, do <laughs> I don't you know feel, about that. <laughs> you've proven it, right? Like you have some great books and, you know, it resonates and it's sold out mm-hmm. on Amazon. Do, do you feel pressure sometimes to just be Helena is just an Asian American youth author. And, and do you fear getting pigeonholed by that? You know, you raise a really good point because, you know, as I mentioned before, 
I have so many stories that have nothing to do with Asian America or with identity. And I would love to see those books see the light of day. I don't know if they will, because so far, it seems that the publishing industry is most interested in the diverse minority American type stories for me. And I hope that that won't always be the case going forward, because you're absolutely right. I just want to be a storyteller, not necessarily just of Asian American stories, but just any story. And so I hope that vision broadens. And I don't know whether right now it's just this huge push in the media to get more representation and more diverse stories out there. Maybe that's the reason why they're so focused on minority diverse stories. But um, going forward, I hope that those stories are the norm and that creators from different backgrounds can create whatever stories they want that have whatever characters they want. It's something I struggled with a long time, even leading up to producing and creating this podcast where, look, like I have friends across the entire spectrum, right? Like I've worked at the large, biggest companies. I have, you know, experiences that are so genuinely American mm-hmm. or just global rather that, you know, I could have started a podcast where I talk to people who are really good at marketing or, you know, um, a podcast right. about whatever, right? Like part of my journey too was just sort of, if I make a general market, let's talk to Jerry about business. It doesn't stand out. It doesn't have of what makes you unique. So mm-hmm. I think part of that too was I think the resonance with who are you and and what gives you the right or the you know mm-hmm. the authority to speak on this topic. There there are plenty of Asian American creators doing things specifically for us, which I think is fantastic. And then there's another group of people who are just through representation, just being visible. I I think that's amazing, right? So and I, I don't think there is a right answer for you and for me and for anybody who's listening who's contemplating this balance of leaning into one's identity and feeling a little bit of guilt for leveraging that to tell a story. For, for me, I, I would say it doesn't matter. Just create because you're not the audience. You don't get to decide who cries reading your story or you know whose, whose life takes a turn because they hear your voice somewhere. Mm-hmm. But yeah, representation is, is so important. When I go to bookstores, you walk down the aisles and am hyper aware and even almost seeking out names that look like mine, you know, mm-hmm. uh, three, four, mm-hmm. five letter last names, right? Like, yeah, it's great. Uh, and then there's more coming. You've done two children's books now. What leads you from a vision and mission perspective? And what do you want your legacy to be as an author? I think that I want to be, I want to leave behind stories that make people uh, think first and foremost, and also just to have a sense of adventure and wonder, you know, for, for kids especially, I just want them to use their imagination and write stories that make their imagination sto- soar because those are the stories I remember most as a kid. I remember reading Charlie and the Chocolate Factory and just imagining, wow, I want to go to that factory and just feeling that sense of wonder for so many years in my life, even now, I, I actually read Charlie and the Chocolate Factory like once every three or four years, I would say, because I want to recapture that feeling I had when I was a child and infuse that same sense of wonder and adventure inside my stories, too. So, um, yeah, I, th- I think that I if I if I make a kid or somebody reading anybody reading one of my stories, 
have that sense of wonder and amazement, I think I've done my job. I think you've done that job plenty of times, many, many times over. I know so many people who've read your book, you know, every time you've had a lunch party here in LA, it's been standing room only. Parents, particularly second generation um, Asian American parents were finally getting to that point of wanting to do something that's going to raise a great amount of healthy cultural pride and association in our children um, who are going to have vastly different immigrant experiences than we can even imagine today. So I, I think you are well on your way um, and you've already done so much for the community. The name of the show here is Dear Asian Americans, and I wanted the entire storytelling experience to be in the form of a love letter from those of us in the community to us with the goals of celebrating, supporting, and inspiring. So I will start the letter and would love it if you could help finish. Dear Asian Americans. Please tell your stories. Uh, they're important and we would love to hear them. I wish you much success and much happiness in all your endeavors. Thanks so much. Thank you, Helena. I think there's so many people who are on a very fast track or a very narrowly defined track to whatever school, whatever degree to put yeah. whatever letters after your name, because so many different reasons that always have the internal tingling and their heart jumps and they get excited when they are able to do creative work, whether it is through writing or speaking or acting. So many of us were raised in an environment where the choice was either or. I think right. you've demonstrated by living it that you can do both. Sometimes you might have to wait a little bit, but I also believe mm -hmm. that the waiting part makes the stories that come out at the end so much more full and more authentic and definitely more resonant because you know, so much of our experience comes through just even in the tone of how we share these stories. So if you're out there and, and you want to be a writer, you want to be a creator, but you also want to, you know, check some boxes, you know, there's no right way to do it. Mm -hmm. if, if you're dropping out of school tomorrow to go make videos full time, good luck to you. If you want to, you know, put it on the, the shelf for a little bit and, and let it marinate, I think that's also a fantastic idea. Where can our listeners find you and learn more about you? And as soon as Amazon restocks, where can we go buy your books? Yes. So um, my books are still available, I believe, at independent bookstores across the country and possibly at Barnes and & Noble. And you can find me online at HelenaKRee.com. And if you subscribe to my website, I will have some cool announcements coming up. So I hope to see you there. That is awesome. Um, Helena, I want to thank you for taking the time to speak to me today. As, as we started the show with, you've touched at least one life I know so many more, but at least speaking for myself and my family, thank you for writing this book. It's meant so much to me and it's special. Thanks so much, Jerry. I really um, enjoyed our chat. You asked some really great questions and I'm so glad the book resonated with you and your family. And for all the dads out there, dude, go get this book, read it to your kids and it's okay to cry. It's an amazing oh. book. <laughs> thank you. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Helena as much as I did having it. Um, yes, I did get a little emotional there at the end. Uh, yes, there was some pounding on the roof throughout the interview. So thanks again for being understanding of our progress as podcast creators and in delivering to you a, a, a product whose audio quality really matches your expectations. I want to thank Helena first for writing these books that have made such an impact in my life and I know so many others out there and for coming on and sharing her story with us because the more stories like this that we share, 
the more normalized it becomes. And it encourages so many people out there listening to this and reading her books to share our own stories because we're not alone. There's so many stories like hers and like yours that uh, really need to be celebrated. So thank you. We opened the show with TLC by Justin Park. So I want to thank Justin Park and Peter Hong of Studio 5A for allowing us to share his music with the rest of you. If our Dear Asian American stories resonate with you, please share the podcast with a friend or two. Subscribe if you haven't already. Leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. And just continue to tell your own Asian American stories, whether in private or in public, because our stories need to be shared. If you'd like to learn more about the show and learn how you can come on to be a guest on the show yourself, please visit our website at DearAsianAmericans.com. At the bottom of the page, you'll find a link to the guest intake form. If you haven't already, please like us on Facebook and follow us on Instagram at Dear Asian Americans. And you can also find the show on LinkedIn. Just search Dear Asian Americans. From the bottom of my heart, thank you so much for tuning in today and listening to my conversation with Helena Kuri. Dear Asian Americans, let's celebrate, let's support, let's inspire. This has been your host. Jerry Wan.